This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Thursday, December 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Alex Edelman is a comic behind one of the funniest Broadway shows of the last year. He's touring just for us. I mean, he's touring for everyone. That's the name of the show. I say it here, right here correctly, because I said it incorrectly when Edelman joined me on stage at the Village Vanguard a few weeks ago. The entire hour-long presentation, which ended with me and Alex talking about, I don't know, the state of Judaism and Israel and anti-Semitism. It's all up on YouTube. Watch it for free. No paywalls. I was joined on stage by Alex and also by Ellie Elephant, a veteran of the IDF, who's very good at analyzing the military and political situation in Israel. But most of it, the vast majority, is essentially my reporting with audiovisual aids, a little bit of storytelling, a little bit of op-ed. I think you'll like it. It's very gisty, but you could look at it and uh, I wear a nice suit. So, you know, you can picture me doing the show in that suit all the time. And now here, I'm just going to play a bit of the Israel briefing from the hour-long presentation now available on the Just YouTube channel. Here's me and Alex Edelman. We hear, well, anti-Semitism isn't anti-Zionism. Okay, stipulated, but you can't be a Semite in their good graces without being anti-Zionist. There are certain circles that, by the way, I do believe that there are distinctions between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. I don't know how useful some of those distinctions are, but I believe that you can be critical of Israel without being critical of Jews. Everybody, you know, everybody believes that. But like, I think that, Okay. But like, I, uh, someone's like, no, they don't. I'm like, all right, I'm willing to. Here's the thing. I'm, I was raised very Talmudically. So if someone's like, I disagree with you, fuck you. And I'm like, you may have a good point there, actually. You know? <laughs> I'm really interested to see if you can change my strongly felt but loosely held opinion. You know, but like, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think there, there are circles where like, you're, it's okay if you're Jewish, provided you are useful. Like, the groups, like, if not now or Jewish, uh, Voice for Peace or any of these groups that are, right. you know, so, so articulate for me what would be, uh, let's define it as an acceptable circle of pro-Israel sentiment that, well, let's do it this way, the a big critic of Israel, an anti-Zionist, how far can they take it before you say, this is bordering on anti-Semitism? Me personally? Yeah, you're going to, we're going to make you the rabbi. Depends on the day for yeah, me, yeah, you yeah. know, sometimes... Because here's the thing, I actually don't uh, trust this uh, current Israeli government. So I think we've had the misfortune of Israel's biggest existential crisis in my lifetime occurring during the, I think, least equipped government to handle it, maybe ever. But I think maybe most Israelis agree with you. I would say that literally, actually, an astounding portion of Israelis agree. Like, literally, it's like in the 80s. Part of me, like, doesn't understand the constitutional mechanisms that keep the guy in power. I'm like... Wait, does he literally have like 2% of the country that likes him and he's like definitely absolutely going to be in charge for the rest of his life? He's like, good like, at it. What can you say? He's really like that guy would burn down the country if he got to be in charge of the ashes. Like it is absolutely <laughs> the most banana situation. And every Israel, like I don't know a single pro, like I went to like an anti-Nintanyahu protest three weeks before October 7th and there was like, there were like 
tens of thousands of Jews, and I felt bad for like the one pronitz on Yahoo protester standing there. Like everyone walking by was like, "Good for you, buddy." You know, <laughs> way to stick in there with your maniac. But like, so yeah. Sorry to answer your question, which I didn't do. Um, I think. Look, criticizing the, the government, especially with the huge, huge Palestinian death toll, the unacceptable death toll, is very valid in wanting a ceasefire, depending on the shape of what that looks like. Is right? like, I don't know where the end of it is. I would say that we're in a place where I'm less concerned about people's ideals and more concerned about their pragmatism because whenever anyone's like, Israel shouldn't exist in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, because it's there and it's not going anywhere and they have a very badly kept secret atom bomb in Demona. Yeah. So they're just not gonna like, they're like oh, we shouldn't exist. Oh, well, Tracy says we shouldn't exist, so I guess we're gonna go. <laughs> we're so sorry. Will someone look after the Blind Museum in Halone and the Hummus Place in Netanya? Like, we really... I forgot we shouldn't be here. But whenever anyone's like, the Palestinians should leave, I'm also like, that's not gonna happen. They want, so like, it's tough because like, to find people that believe that Israel should exist, but also there should be a situation where the Palestinians have some dignity and sovereignty, it's really difficult to find that. So I would say that anti-Semitism, like that line for me is when someone goes, Israel shouldn't exist and we should figure out a way to make that happen. So I was like, well, they're, where are they going to go? Back to Yemen? Yemen's been very clear on their position. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Houthis will not yeah, accept the Houthis, them. By yeah. the way, the Houthis announced their attacks via music video. Have you seen any of They're these? TikTok-ing? I swear to God, the Houthis are like incredibly bad at social media. And they put out like sort of like rotoscoped, like aha, like take on me type videos. They're like, we're declaring war. And I'm like, well, yeah, genuinely. They're like, they're like, they they drop a single and the single's always like, we're gonna be attacking a lot very soon. It's like so but so like anti-Semitism to me is Israel shouldn't exist, and I think that there's a way that, that should happen. And anti by the way, but anti I guess like an Islamic Islamophobic Palestinian yeah. approach would be like, we should turn Gaza into a parking lot. And I'm like, that that, that, that to watch and subscribe. Go to Pescagist on YouTube. The easiest way is to check out the show notes right here today. Okay, Mike, but what if I want to subscribe and pay money and not hear the ads I'm about to be inundated by? Well, I'm glad you ask. This isn't about the videos or YouTube. It's about this show and bonus content that we offer in an ad-free subscription model. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. Get the just ad-free for the low, low price of $4.99 a month. 50 a year, right? Save you some money. 89 a year, $8.99 a month for Pesca Plus, which gives you bonus episodes and a trivia night and lots of fun stuff. I will help you name your child if you are a member of Pesca Plus. Just ask me, get in touch, and I will suggest a name. I'm going to throw one out there right now, beyond the paywall for everyone. Pumple Moose. All right? It's a free one. Nah, not good enough. Not good enough. Okay. First of all, I could give you a promo code. Use Belgium for 11% off at checkout. But that's not going to do it for all listeners. I was contacted by a listener I'm going to call No Morgan Freeman. And he said, hi, Mike. I've been a faithful listener to your podcast for nine years or so. That's how long it's been on. And have voluntarily sent you donations in the past. That 
was confusing. We've never asked for a donation. I don't recall ever taking one. I don't even know what the mechanism would be. I don't have an IRS number, but okay. I followed up with him, by the way, and we both realized he might be mistaken, but he said he'd go look for canceled checks. Please don't do that. No Morgan Freeman. But he goes on. But this new policy of paying extra for getting extras... Now, where do you think he's going to go with that? Seems to make sense. Is the way of the world? Is a fundamental aspect of capitalism and fairness? No. This new policy of paying extras for getting extras really sticks in my craw. Ask for volunteers to send you contributions because we enjoy your show, but don't put a gun to our heads. Wow. And you also have too many ads, particularly in the beginning of your show. So many of my podcasts are doing the same extras, but I could care less about them. You were my number one show. Okay, gun to your head, no Morgan Freeman. Uh, I'd like some pizza with extra cheese. All right, that'll be a dollar extra. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't put a gun to my head. There are so many options available to you, good sir. Listeners can voluntarily subscribe to the ad-free version, which will eliminate that problem you cited of ads. It's a great way not to hear the ads. Ads are you know, 90% of the revenue of the show. Or not, or don't. Fast forward through them. That's a life hack. Probably shouldn't mention it. But you'd be willing to donate, you say. All right, I floated that. Same idea, I have to tell you, coincidence. Floated that to Netflix and my auto lease company and the New York Times and the bodega on the corner selling six packs of Guinness. Hey, will you accept donations in lieu of payment for the service with the price you charge? They weren't into it for some reason. If you don't want the ads, but you don't want to pay for no ads, but want the podcast to continue, but are upset that I offer more podcasts for people who are happy to pay more, I don't know what to tell you. The problem might be you're not understanding the fundamental proposition involved in the gist. Oh, by the way, I do want to say this. The extra for extras, it really is extra. We're not robbing listeners who don't pay for any of this of any interviews. We always edit our interviews down. There are always extra things that normally would get thrown on the slag heap of history. But this is a way for people like, oh, I would like to hear a 40-minute interview where I was once hearing a 20-minute interview. You want to opt in? We want to give that to you. I think what No Morgan Freeman may be reacting to is we've been fading them out instead of ending all interviews with a button. Okay, thank you very much. Great. Pleasure to be here, Mike. And then I say, hey, we have more of that. These days, we've been fading it out just to underscore that there really is more that you want to hear. I guess that's a call to action to some and triggering for others. So I pointed this out. (laughs) <laughs> to listener, no Morgan, no Morgan free, man. And uh, I wrote that these are tough times for podcasts. Uh, he's free to subscribe to whatever he wants to, but ah, the cash donation scheme, I don't think it's going to work. And he wrote back and here was his reply. I will gladly give to the charity of your choice three times your annual membership fee to get the full program. No, that is not how it works. That is not how any of this works. How about instead of that, you give a third of what you were going to pay to charity to subscribe to the gist. You can use the promo code Belgium for 11% at checkout. Or, and I mean this, I'm not being a jerk. I 100% understand. You don't want to subscribe. That was not in the agreement we made nine years ago. Fine, but no guns, no heads. And no charity, except maybe the 11% off that I will give to listeners who go to subscribe.mikepesca.com and use the promo code Belgium 
at checkout. I feel I feel that that was a pretty uh, mercantile exchange between us. On the show today, a few stray thoughts, because what you just heard there was very directed, not at all stray. But first, they discovered a massive tunnel system, really a massive tunnel that you could drive a car through in Israel. And we've been thinking about and talking about tunnels for a long time. And so I'm having on Rena Ninen, who's a veteran reporter who worked for CBS, ABC, and was also the Fox News Middle East correspondent. She's been in the tunnels, smaller tunnels, older tunnels, but tunnels dug by Hamas nonetheless. She joins us to give perspective on those tunnels, which she toured, and to talk about how the media is covering the war. Rena Ninen, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Joining me now is Rena Ninen. She's a former anchor for CBS and ABC and has been in Israel and has even been in the tunnels or some of the tunnels like the tunnels we're talking about under Israel. Rena, welcome to The Gist. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So were you in Gaza or did you see tunnels in northern Israel? No, I was. Um, I actually ended up covering for Fox News Channel. I was a media, media, Middle East correspondent from like uh, 2008 to 2012, which is right at the start of when Hamas took over the Gaza Strip. Wow. So what did you see infrastructure-wise there? They had these like teenage boys digging tunnels in the desert in the middle of nowhere um, to be able to bring in things like Kentucky Fried Chicken, Hershey's Chocolate Bars, yeah. and of course, weapons. I mean, that was really the real reason for this tunnel. But at that time when Hamas ended up winning elections and taking over, uh, Israel had launched an economic blockade to kind of squeeze them out. So they had to find other ways to get aid and things through, and this is that was their their choice of uh, method to get things into the, the strip. From where to where? From largely at that point, you know, because the only way into Gaza was either from the Israeli side currently, or uh, from the Egyptian side near the Rafah border. So this was tunnels dug underneath uh, the border with Egypt to allow them to come in. And what was interesting was then at the time when the Israeli military, just like the U.S. military, the Pentagon releases uh, press releases every week on certain things. At that time, they would release how many tunnels that they were able to blow up. Right. And the reason, Mike, they were able to do that was because they had obviously still do eyes in the sky. They could see these tunnels in the middle of the desert being built. And what they do is they'd allow them to be built. You know, they allow this construction to go through. And once they were close to completion many times, they just bomb them. Yeah. So all that work that they had put through would just be completely taken out. So they had to get smarter. And that's why they are, it's proven, it's not Israeli propaganda, it's true. They have built under mosques and schools and places where they don't have the technology to see where these tunnels are being built. And then they also went far deeper. And the technology just isn't there to detect these tunnels that are like, you know, deep, deep, deep into the ground. From your reporting, were all the tunnels originating in Gaza out or did any of the uh, Hamas tunnel diggers have confederates on the Egyptian side? Well, they had to have some sort of you know, help from the Egyptian side because that's where the goods were coming in from. But the truth of the matter is, Mike, 
the Egyptians don't want this on their border. And in fact, at one point in 2010, when the Israelis finally opened up and allowed more aid and, and things just to help the population in Gaza, not to support Hamas, um, they allowed stuff to come through the Israeli side. Um, the Egyptians took water and water cannons essentially hosed down because these, these tunnels at that time were made um, from sand, you know, mm -hmm. dirt. So they would take these uh, water hoses and hose down the tunnels and force them to collapse. So the Egyptians, they don't want this on their border. Right. But they also knew that they couldn't not allow some things to help protect the Palestinian, their Arab brother and sister in, um, in the Gaza Strip. So that's why they kind of turned a little bit of a blind eye. But the second that they could get rid of them, they did. I'd go further and say that uh, Israel's neighbors, Israel's Arab neighbors, don't want much tangibly to do with the Palestinians anyway. Otherwise, they wouldn't be permanent refugees in Jordan or, say, Lebanon. They'd be absorbed into society. Comment if you will or not, but that's my observation. It's a great observation, and it's true. And it's one of the big game changers, which is, you know, economies are not doing great. You look at Egypt as well. These are countries that are also struggling to stay afloat, but they have limited resources, Mike. I mean, Jordan, I've been there. They've taken in refugees from Iraq, from Syria. They are struggling to you know, just sustain their own population, let alone bring in some of the poorest into their countries. And that's why at one point early on, um, the Israelis and the U S the, the Biden administration said, okay, we want you to take these refugees in. And they're like, absolutely not. Like th these people live there. They need to go back to their homes. We have our people like, we're not, we're not doing this. And they stood by that. And I think, um, there was maybe a school thought that they might be able to put them in the Sinai or, you know, drop them off somewhere. And those two Arab leaders made it very clear that was not going to happen. And also I know that Egypt, uh, hmm, I'm trying to figure out Arab Spring and when you were there and how much of a receding power in the Muslim and Arab world it was. But the Qataris have uh, rushed into the breach where Egypt used to be and the Qataris fund Hamas. And I wonder if there's a, there is a rivalry between Qatar and Egypt. Did you see the change of the prominent Arab states during your time covering the region? You know, it was fascinating to watch because you're right, there is a massive change. Egypt used to be the statesman. It was led at that time when I was there by Hosni Mubarak, who had been there for quite a long time, was the Arab strongman and the person that people in the Western world always went to to, to negotiate. And, and things have changed. And I think that that's why this conflict is so different. You know, when I was there, I never, ever, ever could have imagined that the Abraham Accords would have happened and that the United Arab Emirates, that there would be this normalization of relations with the Arab world, parts of the Arab world and Israel. And also, you know, what's lost in all of this was the Saudis were very, very close with the Israelis in potentially um, creating normalization of relations. And then this happened. So um, to be honest, Mike, you know what the Arab, these Arab capitals won't tell you that's the truth is they're thrilled. That Israel is taking out Hamas. They're doing their dirty work for them. They they don't, you know, of course they have to say we stand in solidarity of the Palestinian people and whatnot. They don't like Hamas. They're not interested. They're not, you know, um, yes, the Qataris have a relationship and whatnot, but Saudi Arabia, they don't. I just, they're not interested in seeing a strength in Hamas either. Right, right. And Saudi Arabia's giant regional and religious rival is Iran. So this becomes a proxy battle with Iran and Iran is at their border in Yemen. So it is in fact in uh, Saudi the Saudi interest, maybe not to say so publicly, but to do whatever they can to beat back Hamas. But I did, I did want to ask you, 
What about going inside of Gaza and what did you report on and what and what did you see in terms of life for the Palestinians, the deprivation even back then? So the way I always got in was actually through the Israeli side, with the Israelis knowing that I'm going right. in because they have right. a crossing called Erez Crossing uh, at the border with Israel and Gaza. And so you go in and it's almost like this military installation, essentially, of like, you think of like TSA, you're putting all this stuff through, everything has to be checked and and they check your background, they run an intel check on you and everything, and then they you, you get through to the Gaza side and you go and you do your thing. So that's how I always got through as a journalist. I never got in from the Egyptian side. And, um, you know, we ate at fish restaurants. I got my hair cut there one time, you know, like life goes on and it's the stunning beachside. If I were to show your listeners, like the places I went in Gaza on the beach, eating grilled fish, like there's just some amazing- It's a beautiful beautiful. Mediterranean community. There are beach clubs. This is is not today and this is not during the war and it wasn't before the war, but there were, the point is there were resources there and Hamas in part, I mean, they uprooted the greenhouses and they tore out the pipes and, you know, the denigration uh, certainly falls on the Israelis for sealing it off, but also the blame has to be put on Hamas for taking what was a potentially beautiful place and turning it into a place of desperation. Yeah. And remember, it wasn't until 2005 when the Israelis completely withdrew the Israelis from Gaza. There were Israelis there, there was development. And Hamas knew when they took over that they had to have and allow Western journalists to feel comfortable and safe. In fact, there were three journalists that were kidnapped um, when Hamas ruled the Gaza Strip in, in tw- uh, 27, uh, 2007 and 2008, I believe. One was uh, a BBC journalist and two were Fox News. Our uh, correspondent I worked with closely, Steve Santani and Olaf Wig, uh, a photog, we really thought they were going to be beheaded. And they were there for like over a week. They were taken by a rival Palestinian faction. And ultimately, Hamas got them released, you know, helped with that, getting them out only because they knew if Western journalists were beheaded in Gaza, they weren't going to get any coverage, which meant no euros from European nations and the US were going to flow in for development. So at the very beginning, they understood they needed these Western journalists to come in and get access for them to be able to get money to come into Gaza. So Rina, let me, since I have you as a subject area expert, but also a media expert, Do you think, uh, and are you surprised that the course of this war seems very, very much dependent on how sympathetic the images are coming out of the war? When the images and narrative uh, were of the sympathetic victims being Israelis, there was support for Israel. And now that it's weeks or months in, and most of the images and most of the death is of Palestinian citizens, things are changing. So that is my question. Is the importance of that as paramount as I'm seeing? And does that surprise you? The images matter in war. I mean, they can be used to stop a war, push a war forward. I think the Israelis know this really well. We're hearing a lot of of talk from um, U.S. defense minister, uh, you know, that Israel cannot move in the South the way they did in the North. Like they just can't be tearing down 50% of the buildings and that sort of thing. Um, But I also can just tell you, just based on my sources in Israel and my sources on the Palestinian side, in the Arab world, they're not sending around photos of the innocent Israelis who were butchered and completely devastated. They're, They're sending around the images of the devastation in Gaza. 
And my Israeli friends are not sending around the photos of the Palestinians. It's not that they're sympathetic. It's not that they don't have a heart for them. It's just they just each side cannot get over the significant loss and pain that they feel. And so it's really hard to get empathy on either side because they feel and and you know there's truth to put from both sides that they've just lost so much and psychological warfare at its height. You know. Um, I don't know if you've ever been, Mike, to Tel Aviv, but it's like Miami on the Mediterranean. It's fabulous. And I had a friend in Tel Aviv who went recently, who lives in Jerusalem, went recently, and she says, everyone has a look of shock on their face. Like, it's just, and to me, it's like going to New York City and saying people look like they've all just been shot and haggard. Like, I just cannot imagine a New York City like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was there two weeks ago and I was in uh, New York City after 9-11 and it was actually worse in Tel Aviv because I think that th there's more of a threat and they've lived with threat, but also there's more of a true shock that this could happen. The United States um, was surprised by the attack of Osama bin Laden, but it didn't shake the fundamental premise of the United States, whereas Israel is always based on the fact that we have the most security in the world for as as incompetent as our government is at times we know our security system keeps us safe and must keep us safe and then when it didn't it's just shattering and you know 911 as painful as it was for us we knew by the end of that day that things had been contained, right? Mm -hmm. For the Israelis, we're now over a month and things are not contained. They just don't know. There's still rocket fire coming into Tel Aviv. There's, there was no hostages. There were no hostages. There were no hostages. Um, and even after, I'm sure, Mike, you were aware of this, like you have friends in Tel Aviv who were worried that there were still militants loose on the ground, you know, that they could be coming into their homes the same right. way. So. Um, there's still a lot of uncertainty in the region. And on the other side, Mike, I think what has also changed is it's interesting, you're not hearing from Arab capitals, you know, who are part of the, Abra the Abraham Accords saying, bye, we're leaving the Israelis. We're not going to, we're, we're cutting up that deal. So there are some things that have changed. I think Qatar has helped in getting some of these hostages out, you know, because, and, and I wondered, would that have been different if they didn't have diplomatic relations, if there wasn't this opening? Um, I just, you know, the day before this happened, this attack happened, I had a friend who was traveling, Israeli businesswoman who was traveling from India and went through the United Arab Emirates, Israel. And she goes, it was full of Israelis. And the joy that Israelis had, business people, people in the business sector, of being able to connect through Dubai and then come to Israel and opening up that, significant, so significant. So you talked about how in the Muslim world, the pictures wouldn't be of sympathetic Israeli victims. And in Israel, it's not so much the sympathetic victims of Israeli bombs. That makes sense. That doesn't surprise me. The question is, what about America, a proxy for much of this debate? As you watch different networks and different outlets, and I'm talking about the big networks, you know, Al Jazeera will do what it does and OAN will do what it does. Put them aside. As you watch the big networks, and you've been on a couple during this war, have you noticed any subtle differences? I think the biggest difference, which I have to say, Mike, really surprises me. I didn't see this coming as uh, you know, as, as big of a force as it's been, is the younger generation, I'm talking millennial and under, um, just how much they view Israel as the aggressor and that the Palestinians are really the underdog. Um, and why I say that's so significant is for so long, I think Israel has enjoyed more support, especially in the evangelical community, um, just a blanket support of Israel because they've felt we have more strategic maybe interests or whatever that connection is. 
And I think it's a real calculus that the Israelis have to look at now is there's a younger generation that views this conflict very, very differently. Um, and I also worry on Gaza, the amount of, there was a lot of, of really um, just damage done and death also on that side of innocent civilians, um, how that affects the next generation of young people. You know, I can only talk about myself. If in any, either I was Israeli or from Gaza, um, if you took away my mother, my father, my kids, my cousins, my whatever, I'd like to think I'm a forgiving Christian woman, but that's going to be a hard one to swallow. Yeah. From a news media perspective, how to play the protests and examples of um, activism that is that are anti-Israel? Because on the one hand, you could make it seem them seem like extremists. On the other hand, you could make them seem extremely popular. So, how do you do that? You know, I think the uh, coverage of college campuses of what's happening is crucially, hugely important. In fact, I um, I know a lot of people think it's politicized and this and that, but I, I think that what we're seeing is um, you look at Vietnam, you know, to end the Vietnam War started in a lot of college campuses. So you can't just say, oh, those little college students, they can't. Sometimes movements gain momentum on college campuses. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of Israelis who can counter some of the protesting that's happening on college campuses. But I also feel like you've got college presidents who don't understand you know, they're experts in certain fields, but they're not necessarily experts in foreign policy and understanding the Middle East. But they've all had to be a quick study to understand what are the important things to reassure a community. Like, shouldn't Arabs and Jews all feel safe on campuses wherever they go? You know, we're in America, you know, um, but I think that's become a real big issue. Yeah. What is there, do you sense that the public is not understanding, I'm talking about the public that is trying to pay attention and is doing their best and putting their time in and isn't ideologically beholden to one side or the other to begin with? Is there anything fundamental that they're not understanding from this conflict? That's a great question. Mike, I didn't fully understand the conflict until I spent five years living there. And even then, the more I study the region, the less I understand. You know, it just is so complex. But until I experienced myself being in the Holiday Inn in Ashkelon in, in southern Israel and having rockets come in the middle of the night, boom, 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 and having to go into the shower of my bathroom because that was the safest place to be, and really experiencing what that's like to try and get a good night's sleep. But then also I was single, you know, to have to be married and have kids or whatever. I couldn't even imagine. So I think it's hard as Americans when you're not used to that type of conflict. You know, you're not used to sending your children for a mandatory draft when they turn right. 18. It's a totally different mindset. Um, and, and I will tell you one thing. Um, in tw I think it was in 2000 or 2022. Uh, sorry, 2009. I think uh, Bill Clinton came to speak in Jerusalem, and he was at the King David Hotel. He was talking to Palestinians and Israelis, and he said to them, and I think he was probably the last most recent US president who had street cred on both the Israeli and Palestinian side. And he was working on a big peace deal that obviously never happened. He said, you guys don't understand that you Israelis and you Palestinians are married by geography and you can't get divorced. There's no such yeah. thing as a divorce in this. And I think so much to those words, he's absolutely right. Like It's a marriage that I don't think Americans will fully understand unless you've lived there and experienced it. Um, and understand the history and the culture. It's just it's just so much deeper. I didn't understand it as an American until I went over there and lived there. But um, I think one of the biggest complexities is how the dynamics are changing in the Middle East. And I do worry that two generations before, you know, people who are maybe in their 60s, 70s, 80s, they spoke the other language. 
you know, the Arabs knew Hebrew, um, the Israeli Jews knew, knew some Arabic. And two or three generations down, there's none of that teaching. And so they're even more strangers. Uh, and so I really, really worry about the next generation and how that's going to shape the Middle East. Rina Nainen is a veteran foreign affairs reporter, many networks, Fox, CBS, ABC, and now The Gist, now Peachfish Productions. Thank you so much, Rina. Love it. Thanks for having me, Mike. It was a pleasure. And now, the spiel. It's time for A Few Stray Thoughts. Mike's walking around, he's a man of good cheer, suddenly stops, oh, he has an idea, it's a few stray thoughts. First one's visual, and it takes us to Caracas. As part of the deal, an American fugitive known as Fat Leonard, who fled the country before being sentenced for his role in a bribery and corruption case, will be sent back to the U.S. to face justice. The deal is one step in President Biden's latest efforts to improve relations with Maduro's Venezuela. So if you're Nicolas Maduro and there are a thousand news stories showing your picture next to a guy named Fat Leonard, and if in all the pictures you are the fatter one, you might be a dictator. Now, I don't say this to petrokleptocrat shame the man. Maduro can wear all the flag of Venezuela tracksuits he wants to to cover up his, like Venezuela's, mountainous interior. But in a country of abundance like the United States, it could be argued that for the leader to have a bit of heft, it shows he's a man of the people. I say he because female politicians get no such breaks. But let's talk about Barack Obama. Not Bill Clinton, not Donald Trump, the skinny guy. And he always used to have to call it out as a skinny kid with a funny name because he was acknowledging the discomfort. Yes, I know I'm different from most of you. No, 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 not the black thing. I mean, maybe a little bit. I'm talking about how you and I are differently circumferenced, if you will. But in Venezuela, by contrast, a fat man in charge is clearly not feeling the specific pain of the populace. Venezuela now faces a catastrophe of its own making, widespread malnutrition among the country's children. That from NPR. Maybe Maduro released Fat Leonard and 36 prisoners, other prisoners, to the U.S. because his country could not afford to feed them anymore. I would pursue that angle. Another stray thought. So the other day we documented the upheaval caused by the Houthi rebels. Though we found some tape of Lindsey Graham and Lloyd Austin calling them the Houthis, the Houthi rebels. Iran's support for Houthi attacks on commercial vessels must stop. Well, now I found this. There is no congressional declaration of war against the Houthi rebels. That is New York Times columnist David French on the Advisory Opinions podcast. Hootie, Houthi, Houthi. To me, they're just hotties. Hotties with a body of invective against the West. Listen to this. Found it in the New York Times. The Houthis or Houthis or Houthis, probably not Houthis. They are just terrible at delivering threats. They go on way too long. They don't understand a quick punchy, pointed threat. Here's the quote. For decades, the Houthis had anchored their ideology on hostility towards the United States and Israel and support for the Palestinian cause, quote, death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, is part of the group's slogan, 
part of the slogan? Do the Houthis know how slogans work? Slogans are not treatises. The preamble to the Constitution is not the slogan of the United States of America. I looked it up. Here is the full Houthi slogan, translated from the Arabic. God is the greatest. Death to America. Death to Israel. A curse upon the Jews. Victory to Islam. Is this a rallying cry or a to-do list, people? And why is it in that order? Wouldn't death to Israel itself be a curse upon the Jewish people? Or, let's say you were thinking about it in terms of a flow chart, then wouldn't a curse upon the Jews be more likely to lead to a death to Israel? I'm trying to workshop things here for you, you Houthis. The U.S. government has their red lines in terms of attacks in the Red Sea. I have mine in terms of an editor's pencil. I mean, jihadism, bad enough, but pair that with prolixity. The guys are just annoying. But, you know, I guess being annoying is not against the law, except it is another stray thought. Jonathan Majors, the actor, was on trial and was convicted. I didn't pay much attention to it. He did seem to, or he actually has been found to have struck his girlfriend, girlfriend at the time, but I found he was found guilty of the crime of second-degree harassment. I saw a reference, looked it up, New York Consolidated Laws Penal Code 240.26, harassment in the second degree. Listen to this. A person is guilty of harassment in the second degree when, with intent to harass, annoy, or alarm another person. So with the intention to annoy, and they lay out a couple things that could constitute actual harassment, he or she follows a person in or about a public place or engages in a course of conduct or repeatedly commits acts which alarm or seriously annoy such other person and which have no legitimate purpose. So you're guilty of harassment if you intend to annoy and you in fact do annoy, unless there's a good purpose for being annoying. I mean, if being annoying is against the law in New York, how did Rudy Giuliani ever have a chance? And that leads me to another stray thought. I know Rudy Giuliani and his $148 million loss was not adjudicated in New York City, but he went bankrupt in New York City. And the people he lost to, they want their money. This comes just one day after a federal judge ruled Giuliani has to immediately pay that $148 million that he owes to two former Georgia election workers. But I don't have $148 million, I'm sure he's thinking. If he did, though, wouldn't it be great, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss? No one should ever have to go what they went through. But considering how it all played out, I don't know, maybe they'd recommend it. Now they each have, or will have, 50 million in the bank if Rudy was good for it, after taxes and lawyers' fees, and yeah, they had to change their names to avoid the harassment, but it works out because, you know, they'd have to change their names anyway to throw off the scent of deadbeat third cousins. By the way, these two election workers are still suing because Rudy is still defaming. They're asking the judge, and this is clever, not just for money, which Rudy doesn't have, but for a contempt order punishable by jail time. Shut up, Rudy! (laughs) Which, like Rudy's debts, might be stacking up pending the adjudication of the Georgia criminal case. So from a fat Leonard to a poor Rudy to a law against annoyance to a chatterbox hootie, these have been a few stray thoughts. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and what about Joel Patterson, you ask? Well, he's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Um, Peru, G, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening. 
special projects. What about Joel Patterson, you ask? Well, he's the senior producer. He's just getting over a cold, so maybe he didn't realize I said things out of order. Or maybe he was so on top of it, he put things in order. Let's see how these credits work out.